morning and uh, before I get started, I want to uh, ramble for just a moment and uh, I want to thank the congregation for the wonderful uh, gift that you gave us last week, the monetary gift. Uh, just uh, Elizabeth and I got home, opened that envelope up and uh, we were just... Uh, overwhelmed by your generosity, and I just want to thank you very much for uh, what you gave us last week as a token of just your appreciation, support, and uh, we've sure enjoyed our relationship with you here in the time that uh, we've been here. So we thank you very much for that. Um, Also want to just, uh, I didn't catch John before the announcements this morning, but I want to talk about one meeting that probably won't happen and then a meeting that definitely is going to happen. The meeting that uh, is definitely going to happen, you saw on your screen just a minute ago, we're going to have a leadership retreat, Lord willing, the last Saturday of this month. And our transition team, our deacons, our trustees, our elders, and then some other people that have been leaders in our church that may not be officially holding an office right now, but but you're obviously a leader. We want to make sure that people that uh, have led this church are involved in this, this time that we're going to have together. Uh, I know some of you are going to be in and out of town and won't be able to be with us, but, but it should be a very significant day in the life of our churches. We just try to pull together some of the things we've learned over the last year or so uh, from the transition process and, and put together an action plan that uh, we can have in place is, is uh, we're preparing now for the pastor that God is going to give to this church. And I'm praying for that. I know you're praying for it. It's going to be exciting to see what God does. And so please circle that date on your calendar. Now for the meeting that isn't going to happen, and that's Sunday evening service, okay? Uh, and I hope the elders are going to forgive me for this one, but I'm going to cut myself some slack today, Okay. Uh, some people asked me when I came in today, how are you doing? I said, you know, I think I'm probably about 75%. And uh, I, I, I hope I'm making the right decision here, but I'm really not prepared for tonight. And uh, besides that, it was poor planning on my part because this is the second Sunday of the month, and this is when our small groups normally meet. And we've got some great small groups, and I, one of them is meeting this afternoon at the Richardson's. And I, I think it's important that our small groups meet. And so I, I, let's just meet in our groups today if, if you've planned that. And uh, I want to continue the study that I've been doing on spiritual gifts, and I want to finish it because there's a method to my madness, and that's what we've been doing on Sunday nights. And I promise you that by the grace of God, I'm going to make it up to you, and we will find a time and a way either on Sunday night or a couple of Sunday nights back-to-back, but we'll figure it out. I want to get through this study uh, before my time here is finished because I think it's important for uh, our church family. But uh, if, if it's okay, we just won't meet tonight. We'll just let the small groups meet. Okay, it seems like there was something else I wanted to say, but uh, that's probably enough rambling now for this morning, okay? I do want to thank you for all your prayers. Uh, thank you for your prayers, uh, for, the, for uh, uh, the time that you've given me and uh, just your prayers uh, during this little rehab process. And uh, God has been really good to Elizabeth and me. Now, on Friday, I called uh, Nick. 
And the reason I called Nick is because uh, I remembered that uh, this church took a team to New Orleans back in 2006 after Hurricane Katrina. And I wanted to kind of refresh my memory. He talked to me about it before on some of the people that went. Uh, Nick went. Uh, Laura Gardner was a part of that trip. Uh, how many of you know Laura Gardner here in the church? Could I just see your hands? You better know Laura Gardner. Uh, Brian Peck was on that trip. I, I didn't realize that. I think somebody may have told me that you were on that trip, Brian. I'm glad they had you there. That was a construction trip. They needed your brawn, buddy. Will Balta and his son, there were several people from Southwesterlo and Westerlo that made the trip in 2006 down to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And we've got some slides coming up for you now this morning, and I'm just going to let you kind of scroll through there. I think we've got six or seven slides there. I want you to look at those because you remember back in 2005 that that hurricane hit 175 miles per hour. Now, that's, I think, as fast as Rick Stark's airplane. 175 miles an hour, those winds. $108 billion, not million, but billion dollars in damage to New Orleans and the surrounding area. Somewhere between 1,200 and 1,800 people lost their lives in that hurricane. The levees were broken. The walls were down. The city was in crisis. And I share that story with you this morning, and I'm so glad that we had a team that went and helped in the repair, the rebuilding project, because it's a bridge now to what we want to talk about this morning as we talk about the city of Jerusalem and the story of Nehemiah. And I want to take you back this morning in time. It's not September of 2005 A.D. It's 445 B.C. And it isn't President George W. Bush who was in the sixth year of his presidency when Hurricane Katrina hit. It was King Artaxerxes who was on the throne George W. Bush was in his sixth year as a president at that time. King Artaxerxes, when this book was written, was in his 20th year as king of Persia. And the scene is not New Orleans now or Washington, D.C., but the scene is the city of Susa, which was the winter capital of the Persian kings. And we have another slide that's coming up for you now that gives you some information about the city of Susa, the winter capital of these Persian kings. It was the favorite hangout place for Darius, King Darius. And Susa was located about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf in modern-day or southwestern Iran. Now, this story opens in verse 1, and I hope you've got your Bible open or you've got your phone on. However, you get your scripture, and I hope you were listening as Scott read the Word of God to us this morning. Please notice verse 1, because this story opens, and the main character of this book, 
the human character of this book, Nehemiah, the son of Halakai, uh, is introduced to us. And Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. Isn't that an attribute of God? The Lord comforts. You know, we have some people in our congregation right now that are in need of comfort. I think all of us are familiar with what's going on with the Maslowski family. All of us know what happened with Janet Almstead. We've been traveling Ted's journey with him. We all need God's comfort at time in our lives. The, the name of Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. The Lord brings you comfort. That's the heart of God. He wants to comfort you this morning. And this is the main character of this book. He was a Jew. He was born in exile. He lived all of his life in a foreign land. And we know from verse 11, if you look down the page, at verse 11 here in chapter 1, the very last verse of chapter 1, that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Now, if you were a cupbearer back in those days, that was a very privileged or prominent position in the king's court because many times the cupbearer was the king's confidant. The cupbearer was the king's uh, protector. It would be like, it'd be a little bit like uh, a bodyguard for President-elect Trump. We're going to have his inauguration now here in just about uh, 10 days or a little over. And believe me, there'll be a lot of uh, security people out that, on that occasion. And so if you were a cupbearer to the king, it would be, very much be like being in the, in the security service to the president-elect of the United States or being his bodyguard. You many times uh, taste uh, the food before he tasted it to make sure that he didn't get poisoned. Now, I want to just uh, pause for a moment before we go any further today, and I want to encourage you as a church family to do something. I want to encourage you to go to Sunday school. That's a good Baptist thing to do. At least in the Southern Baptist churches, back in the Midwest or in the South where I'm from, if, if, you're, from a, if, you're, if you're a Baptist, you go to Sunday school. I want to encourage you to go to Sunday school this winter. Get involved in a class. John Gardner's teaching a great class right now on servanthood. And it's not just about deacons, but it's about how we can serve one another. Tom Mitchell is teaching a great class in the Old Testament. He's doing his, his typical Old Testament survey class right now. And it would be a great class to get involved in this winter as we're going through the book of Nehemiah. Because so much of the time, uh, our knowledge of the Old Testament as believers is very limited. Let's be honest with each other. We spend a lot more time in the New Testament than we do in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is the Word of God too. And there's a lot of truth in the Old Testament. So this would be a great opportunity to go to Tom Mitchell's Sunday School class and get a chronology of the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you a few significant dates that you can hold on to this morning that you're going to need to remember as we go through the book of Nehemiah. And they're coming up on the screen for you. And if you go to Tom Mitchell's class today, you're going to, yeah, you'll, you'll get your feet wet with some of this stuff. 
This is a very, very important date in, in, in the history of the Bible and God's people. 586 B.C. That is when Jerusalem fell and Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken into captivity. Now, here's another very important date for you to remember. This date is 538 B.C., and that's the date of Cyrus' edict about 70 years later, Cyrus gives this edict, and the people of God, the Jewish people, are allowed to go back to their homeland from captivity in Babylon, 538 B.C. And if you don't think that isn't miraculous, then read Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, because Cyrus is mentioned by name 200 years before he even, even came to the throne, even before he was alive. He's mentioned by the prophet Isaiah. Way back in the 700s B.C., this is predicted that he would do this in 538 B.C. If you don't think the Bible isn't a book different than any other book. And then here's another date for you to remember, 536 B.C. 536 to 516 B.C., is when the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. And, a, and a, the prophet Haggai, the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, if you go to Tom's class, you'll learn about that. He preaches and he encourages the people to rebuild the temple. And so the temple's rebuilt from 536 to 516 B.C. But then in uh, another very important date for you to remember is the date of 458 B.C., because that's when Ezra returns to Jerusalem with another group of exiles. There were actually three waves of exiles which returned from Babylon captivity back to Jerusalem. The first group went back in 538 B.C. when Cyrus issued that edict, but the second group went back when Ezra, the scribe or the priest, went back to Jerusalem. And then the the last date I'm going to give you this morning is the date 445 B.C., which is when when Nehemiah, this book that we're talking about now this morning, when Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem with a third group of, of, of captives, a third group of exiles, they go back to Jerusalem in 445 B.C. And did you know, get into Sunday school now, and you'll learn some of this stuff. Did you know that Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book originally in the Hebrew Old Testament? Ezra, Nehemiah, one book in the old Masoretic text. In our English Bible, it's two books. And that took place a little bit later on, but originally it was just one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, there are three parts to this first chapter in this book that I want you to remember this morning as we work our way through these verses which Scott read. The first thing I want you to see in verses 2 and 3 is the condition of Jerusalem as Nehemiah gets news of what's going on back home. Remember, he's cupbearer to the king in the capital of Susa in Persia, and he gets this report 
on the condition of Jerusalem. And we have that in verses 2 and 3. Then we have a, a description of the contrition, the response of Nehemiah as he gets this report of this news in verse 4. And then I'm just going to touch on verses 5 through 11 this morning. And that's the character of God. And we're going to go there next week. And that becomes really the most important part of uh, chapter 1 as we're going to end with looking at the character of God and the prayer of Nehemiah. But the first thing I want you to see here now is the condition of Jerusalem as Nehemiah gets this report on this occasion. Notice that Hanani, and incidentally the, the name this, this, this Hebrew word, or this, this name Hanani means God is gracious. Nehemiah means God is comfort. Hananiah means God is gracious. One of his brothers, and he's also mentioned in chapter 7, verse 2, comes from Judah with a group of men, and Nehemiah begins to question this, this gentleman about the Jewish remnant who have survived the exile And they said to me, those who survived the exile, now look at verse 3 again, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. You see, Jerusalem was a city in a state of crisis like New Orleans was when we sent that team down there in 2006. It was devastated. Yes, the temple had been rebuilt, but if you read Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 through 23, write that passage down. It's in your notes too, but write that down. And you go back and you look at Ezra. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah, originally it was one book. You go back and you read Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 through 23. What you discover is that there's opposition to rebuilding. And the rebuilding comes grinding to a halt. And so the city isn't rebuilt and the walls aren't rebuilt. In fact, the gates are burned down with fire. And so things are at a standstill. And please notice how Nehemiah got this report. It wasn't through CNN or Fox News or over the Internet. It was the old-fashioned way. The news came by camelback. A group of guys traveling by camel some 700 miles or whatever it was, the distance between Susa and and Jerusalem, they, they come and they give this report. But it's still news, and the news impacts Nehemiah in a very significant way. And he realizes that there's devastation. It's it's a little bit like what went on in Fort Little, Florida, just this last weekend. That airport was in chaos. If you watched any of the images or you follow the, the, the report of what went on, they were in chaos at that, that airport. The, the city of Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. And we read by, in this report here in verse 3 that they're in, notice, great trouble and disgrace. Now, these are some interesting Hebrew words. And if you're following along in your notes on page 2, you can see there in the middle, 
We've kind of spelled it out there for you. It just means the city was in distress or calamity. In modern-day English, you could say they were in a bad way. They were hurting. They needed help. They were in great distress and disgrace. And this word for disgrace means that they were in reproach. It means to expose someone or something. And the word great means intense. In other words, this wasn't just some type of little finger prick, some kind of little minor difficulty that they were going through. They were in great distress and shame. They were in need of rebuilding. And what I want you to see here this morning is this book that we're going to be looking at over the next many weeks is a book about rebuilding and revival and renewal. And just as Jerusalem, God's holy city, needed to be rebuilt, we need rebuilding and we need renewal spiritually. (laughs) And we need revival many times in our own walk with Christ. In fact, Henrietta Mears, the Munces are using this book in their small group Bible study right now with some people that don't, don't everybody in your group doesn't always go to, go to our church, but it's a great book, a book by Henrietta Mears called What's the Bible All About? And in this little book by Henrietta Mears, she says Christ is mentioned in every book of the Bible, and he's described. And do you know how Christ is described in the book of Nehemiah? He's our rebuilder. He's our restorer. He's our reviver. He's our renewer. And that's the kind of work that Christ wants to do in our lives. If you're in relationship with Jesus this morning, at the beginning of this new year, what he wants to do is revive you and revive me. And God knows I'm in need of reviving. And only God knows how much I'm in need of revival. But if you're like me, if you're a human being, we're not much different than the city of Jerusalem. When Nehemiah got this report, Ray Stedman says in his little commentary or in a sermon about Nehemiah, he summarizes what Nehemiah is all about. He said, it's the story of renewal, revival, and the restoration of the people of God from ruin and despair to a new walk with God. And so that's why I'm calling this God's roadmap for rebuilding your life. There are principles in this book. There is so much rich truth, spiritual truth in this book of Nehemiah that if you'll tune in over the next many weeks, there are principles here that we can learn, that will revive you and renew you in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, just like they rebuilt the walls of this city. So maybe you're here this morning and the walls of your life are broken down and the gates are burned with fire. And you're sitting there and you're listening to this and you're saying, you know what? The truth is, I am in need of a little rebuilding and maybe I am in need of a fresh touch of the Spirit of God. 
in my own life, in my own walk with Christ. And maybe you're in that situation because of events that have taken place in your past or choices that you've made presently in your life. But that's where you are today, and you feel vulnerable. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned down. If you're following along, we're on page three of the notes now. And you feel weak and defenseless. And maybe you're here this morning and you can identify with everything that we're saying about this book to this point. And you're sitting here today and the gates of your life are burned down and you're, you're, if the truth be known, if somebody could look into the door of your heart, there's shame or disgrace or because of some past hurt or in a church this size, maybe some type of abusive relationship from your past or somebody that's hurt you relationally and you're struggling to forgive them or I don't know what the situation would be in your life this morning, but but that's your situation. Well, the great news today is that the Bible is a book of hope. It's a book about, it's filled with good news. And there's good news in this book. God's desire, his heart, is to rebuild and renew us in our relationship with him. And a lot of us are not too much different than the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice not only the condition of Jerusalem, the walls were broken down and the people were in shame and disgrace. You just heard, heard verses 2 and 3. But notice now the contrition of Nehemiah. Notice his response. Notice Nehemiah's response when he gets this report, when he gets this news by camelback, the old-fashioned way. Notice what the Bible tells us that he does here in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Now let's talk about verse 4 for just a moment. And let's just break it down. Look at these words again. He sat down, and you can follow along in the notes. This was the typical posture of people who were in mourning. Many times people who were in mourning in the Old Testament would sit on a low stool for seven days, and they would mourn or they would grieve over someone who had died or some, something that, that they were grieving for. And then it says that he wept. Now, if you understand this Hebrew word, this means that he didn't just shed a few crocodile tears. This word describes moaning with tears. It means to weep bitterly. And then notice he mourned. This is a word used 30 times in the Old Testament. And it was a word used to mourn the dead. To lament. And then notice he fasted. Now that's an interesting word. When was the last time you fasted when you prayed? 
I'm going to turn the tables around and point the fingers now at me, okay? Randy, when was the last time you fasted when you prayed? And I got to be honest with you, it's been a while. It's been a while. I used to fast. I, there were some times where I used to fast. But you know what? It's been a while. When was the last time you fasted when you prayed? Just read before I walked in here this morning, I wanted to make sure I had it right. Jonathan Edwards, before the revival, the first great awakening, for three days before he stepped into the pulpit and preached that sermon, sinners in the hands of the angry God, for three days, he didn't eat a thing. For three days, he fasted. And according to his wife, you could hear him repeating over and over and over again. God, give me New England. God, give me New England. You see, the truth of the matter is, we're brain dead. We're desensitized to what's going on in our world today. We hear stuff like what happened in Fort Lauderdale last weekend. And we hear what happened in Berlin and the shootings. And we get all these reports. And you know what? There's so many of them. We just kind of stiff our, we just kind of tune it out. The walls in our country are broken down. And the gates have been burned with fire. The walls in the Old Testament around a city were the defense of that city. And the gates were like the highways that took you into the city. The Bible says here the gates were burned down and the walls weren't rebuilt. The city was in crisis. Our nation is in crisis. Our churches are in crisis. We need a fresh touch of God. And now I'm going to turn the finger back to me again. I need a fresh touch of God in my own heart and life. We need a fresh touch of God. And I want to challenge you this morning to pray, to pray for our country, to pray as President-elect Trump is installed in office now in about 13 days or whatever it is. Forgive me, that's what happens when you're, you, whatever, you know, you just, I can't do math anymore. What is today anyway? The 8th, the 8th of January. But we need to be praying. We need to be praying. Notice the, the prayer of Nehemiah. Notice the response of Nehemiah. Read verse 4 again. And notice the response of Nehemiah. And you know what? Ezra went back in 458 B.C. 
Nehemiah didn't get there till 445 B.C. The walls had been broken down for a long time. This wasn't new news. This wasn't a new situation. And so for a long time, if you can put yourself back in Nehemiah's shoes, Nehemiah, this cupbearer to the king in, 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 in the capital city of Susa, life was pretty good. He was the confidant of the king. I mean, he was there in the palace. And, and so who cares what was going on back in Jerusalem? He was desensitized. You see, this had been going on for a long time. And things have been going on for a long time in our country. But for whatever the reason, when Nehemiah finally gets this news on this occasion, it strikes him in a different way. And he begins to weep and mourn. And he begins to fast and pray. And this is very important, what Nehemiah does. And we're going to see this uh, next week as we go further in chapter 1. It's very important that he prays first. And real quickly, and you'll have to read the notes because we're not going to get through it all today. I want you to notice that he does three things in this prayer. Number one, he faces the facts. The walls were broken down and the gates of the city were burned. And the people were in shame and disgrace. He faced the facts, the reality of the situation. Now, that's very important for a church like this church, First Baptist, or whatever other church you want to name, or for an individual, Randy, Elizabeth, Tom, whoever, you know, just name a name. It's very important. If you're going to experience renewal or revival or rebuilding spiritually in your life, the first step is you got to face the facts. You can't pretend that the walls are up and the gates are fine. You just can't do that. And that's the problem in the church in America today. That is the problem. We're pretending that everything's okay. Isn't that the truth? And so the first step is to face the facts. And that's what Nehemiah does here. He admits it. The walls are down. The gates, the, the, the gates have been burned. And then the second step is he mourns over the city with misery. He's sorry about the sin. He regrets the ruins. He weeps over the wrong. And remember, we began last year. With Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the poor in spirit. Nehemiah is poor in spirit. And so God now can rebuild the walls. He can rebuild the city. Nehemiah is going to listen in the words of our song this morning. He's going to listen and follow, and he's going to go back, and God's going to do a work. And then that's the last thought here is you've got to go to God. You've got to go to God. Don't try to handle a rebuilding project in your own strength. I've got a story up here this morning about a lady, an 80-year-old lady who tried a do-it-yourself restoration project of a a beautiful mural of Jesus, and and, uh, she botched it up, and they said after she finished, and the truth is it did need to be touched up, but, but after she got done, somebody said it's probably the worst art restoration project of all time. 
She just destroyed it in her attempts to redo it. The point is, don't try to rebuild your life in your own strength. You can't do it. It can't be done. That's why you've got the word Nehemiah and the word Hanani in this book. God is comfort and God is grace. You can't rebuild your life apart from God's comfort and God's grace. It can only be done with the help of God. And so go to God. That's the third point, and that's where we're going to pick up next week. We're going to look at verses 5 and 11 through 11, and you're going to see that Nehemiah does four things as he comes to God in prayer. And uh, you can look at page 5 in your notes this morning, take it home with you, and study it, because we're going to look at this prayer that Nehemiah prays before he goes to the king and asks permission to do anything. It's important that he prays first. And we're going to look at four things that he does in this prayer. And we're going to look at this great God, this awesome God that he prays to. Because the truth is, no matter how broken down your life may be this morning, no matter what your situation in life is, or no matter what your marriage is like, or what it's like in your family today, the truth is, the God of Nehemiah is still the God today. The God of Nehemiah is still the God that we worship today. And if you read this prayer, we have, notice how he addresses God. is the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. This is a a, a title, a description of God used 22 times in the Old Testament and 17 times in this book. We have a great and awesome God who wants to come alongside of you and he wants to come alongside of me and he wants to come into our church and he wants to do a great work in all of our lives if we'll just turn to him, if we're willing to turn to him and look to him like Nehemiah did. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we come to you now this morning, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the book of Nehemiah and this study that we get to to do now this winter together as a church family. And I ask God, in the name of Jesus, that you will do a work, Lord, in my heart and life, And Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that you will do a work in this church family, in our church this winter. And I ask God that you will do a work in Westerlo and South Westerlo and the hill towns in this area that only you can do, Lord, the kind of work that you want to do, Lord, in our hearts and lives. And I don't know what that is, but Lord, we look to you for whatever kind of work you want to do. And we give ourselves to you at the beginning of this new year. In your name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.